Hello, everyone, and welcome to the seventh and central episode of the DNA Papers, the podcast series in which we examine the original papers that reported the discovery of DNA and gradually uncovered the secrets of its chemical composition, structure, and function. I've labeled this episode as the central one, not only because it roughly marks the halfway point in this podcast series, but also because of its absolute centrality, not just to the story of DNA, but I would claim to all of 20th century biology and consequently to the history of biology overall. The paper has a long title, which I'll now provide, Studies on the Chemical Nature of the Substance-Inducing Transformation of Pneumococcal Types, and then the subtitle, Induction of Transformation by a Desoxyribonucleic Acid Fraction Isolated from Pneumococcus Type 3. It was published in the Journal of Experimental Medicine by a trio of medical microbiologists from the Rockefeller Institute, as it was known then, in New York City. Oswald Avery, Colin McLeod, and McLean McCarty. Although it appeared quietly enough on the scientific stage in 1944, the paper has, in the three quarters of a century since its publication, been deemed as and this is not my words, arguably the most important discovery in physiology or medicine of the century. If you think I'm being hyperbolic, then wait until I hand the discussion over to the members of our guest panel on this topic, which I will do as soon as I introduce them in the usual fashion in alphabetical order by last name. First, I'm pleased to welcome Matthew Cobb back to the series. He is by now a familiar voice on this series, having commented earlier on the contributions of both Walter Sutton and Fred Griffith. But even if I'd been compelled for some reason or the other to limit the appearance of a guest to a single episode, then this would have had to be it for Matthew, simply because of his papers about Oswald Avery the first author of this paper. Welcome, Matthew. It's great to be here. Next, I'm delighted to introduce, for the first time to this series, Uta Dykman from the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. And forgive me if I've mispronounced anything. Uta has been the founding director of the Jacques Loeb Center for the History and Philosophy of the Life Sciences there, since 2007. She has broad expertise in the history of the near contemporary life sciences, but what propelled me to invite her to participate in this episode of the podcast were her publications on the early reception by the scientific community of this 1944 paper by Avery et al. Welcome and thank you for joining us today, Uta. Thank you for inviting me. It's my great pleasure to welcome science writer Jeff Montgomery to the DNA Papers series. There's a deep personal connection for me to be able to invite Jeff to this episode in particular. And I beg the audience's indulgence to bear with me for a moment. You see, about 25 years ago, Jeff, who then went by the title of Assistant to the President for Special Projects, 
at the Rockefeller University hired me to help him with one of the said special projects, which was the then soon-to-occur centenary of the university. And the first assignment he put me on was to work on the paper trail of Avery et al.'s 1944 paper. It was my initiation, so to speak, into history of science and set me on the path that has come now to full circle. So as you can imagine, this is very special to me to be able to invite Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us. So welcome again, everyone. I'm excited to get this discussion started. Let's begin with the usual, the basic question. What is this paper about? Could you offer your one to two minute summary? Matthew. The paper is about a phenomenon that had intrigued Avery and a number of other thinkers since the 1920s, this strange phenomenon of transformation in pneumococcal bacteria. And what Avery has spent 20 years nearly trying to do is to establish how it actually works, what the chemical basis of this transformation, this alteration of one type of pneumococcus into another type, how it can actually be produced. And by a series of extremely careful and precise chemical studies, including all sorts of controls, he comes to the conclusion that the active principle, the transforming principle, as he called it, is deoxyribose nucleic acid, DNA. So although he doesn't actually say in the paper, in this species or in this bacterium, genes are made of DNA, this known phenomenon, which is a transformation of one type of bacterium into another that is caused by DNA. Thank you. Uta? Yeah, <laughs> I think Matthew already summarized it very well. So this paper, in any case, it's a contribution to the many attempts that, that already existed, uh, as they write themselves, to induce by chemical means specific changes, which then could be transmitted as hereditary characters. And he mentioned Griffith, he mentioned Neufeld and Levinthal, he mentioned Dawson of his own laboratory, all of whom already did research on, on this. But what is special in this paper and what is the special goal, as Matthew already said, is to isolate the active principle and to identify its chemical nature. And that means that Avery, like other people at the Rockefeller Institute at that time, was convinced that basic life phenomena had a physical chemical basis. And that is not self-evident, but it is very, very important to understand this paper. Thank you. And over to you, Jeff. Well, just following up on what Udo said, the core of the paper is this experimental section, which is a process of purification, a process of chemical purification within this strange genetic system of pneumococcal type transformation that leads to this purified form of DNA, the stuff that genes are made of. And I always like the analogy that the great biochemist Arthur Kornberg made for purifying an enzyme, that it's like establishing a series of ascending base camps up a uncharted and treacherous mountains. And that's what you can see in this experimental section as they establish these base camps 
to fractionate and isolate and purify the transforming substance as DNA. And if you'll indulge me, the most vivid summary of this is actually in the famous letter that Avery writes his brother Roy in May 1943, just to give a little emotional sense of the heroic effort that they had to go through to to get to DNA. For the past two years, first with McLeod and now Dr. McCarty, I've been trying to find out what is the chemical nature of the substance in the bacterial extract which induces this specific change. The crude extract is full of type 3 capsular polysaccharide, carbohydrate, nucleoproteins, free nucleic acids of both the yeast and thymus type, lipids, and other cell constituents. Try to find in that complex mixture the active principle. Try to isolate and their exclamation points and chemically identify the particular substance that will by itself when brought into contact with the R cell cause it to elaborate the type 3 capsular polysaccharide and to acquire all the aristocratic distinctions of the same type, specific type of cells as that from which the extract was prepared. Some job full of heartaches and heartbreaks, but at last perhaps we have it. And then he goes through the methods of purification, which again, following up on Uda uh, and the connection to Rockefeller, crucially are enzymes that all were purified and crystallized at Rockefeller to eliminate proteins, to eliminate RNA, to eliminate polysaccharide, and finally, a not a purified enzyme in this paper, but a crude enzyme extract that it, in fact breaks down DNA that really leads them to this converging conclusion that the transforming substance is DNA. And as uh, Avery says to his brother, who could have guessed it? Because in fact, DNA had never even been discovered within pneumococcus before this study. Okay, very interesting, especially that last little tidbit, that the fact that DNA or desoxynucleic acid, as it's being called in the title of this paper, has not even been found yet in pneumococcus, and yet it is what is turning out to be the transforming principle. I'd like to step a little back now and ask what is perhaps an obvious question in view of my introduction, but what is the significance of this paper? Usually I ask this question with specific reference to the series and the history of DNA, and I would very much like an answer to that as well. But before that, would one of you care to point to its significance in the broader landscape of the history of biology overall? Uta, perhaps you'd care to go first? Yes, I will talk only about the significance for what later became genetics, I mean molecular genetics, and not about the significance for immunochemistry, which was also tremendous. And I want to first say what the significance is not, because you read it very often. The significance is not the demonstration that the gene is a material substance. This was already shown half a century before. I mean, that that genes probably are even, I mean, that there are nuclein, which contained a lot of DNA, which was known under the name of nuclein. And in the 1930s, already people believed that genes are proteins. So that is not the crucial thing. And it is also not the first paper to assume a connection between DNA or nuclein and heredity. What, What I said before, it was already shown half a year, a century before. But for the first time, and that's what I see significance, 
it clearly associated a particular genetic phenomenon to DNA, and thus it could become the basis of all further studies on structure and function of, of DNA. And concretely, it impacted, this paper impacted research by challenging the dogma that genes have to consist of protein, which was a very uh, ingrained dogma in many brilliant heads, by demonstrating the biological specificity of DNA that was already assumed by some, but was never closely examined. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, by showing that the physical nature of genes can be analyzed directly, that means chemically, in contrast to the highly favored indirect methods of X-ray diffraction or uh, of phage research. This was all indirect, and it were the most modern physical chemical methods to examine the gene. But here it became chemistry, and in particular the chemistry of DNA, which is now a tool to analyze it. And the other significance is, uh, was already mentioned by, by Jeff, namely the exact nature of the experiments that include their reproducibility and their predictability. Yeah, I, I think one of the ways you can get the significance of this paper, and I, I wrote about it in a rather lighthearted way, is to imagine what would have happened if the paper hadn't been written. And being rather rather brutal, what, have, what would have happened if poor old Avery had died in the 1930s when he was on the operating theatre for Graves' disease? And although that you know, history would have, the science would have progressed and we we would have discovered the physical nature of the gene and all the rest of it. It's clear that it would have taken longer. It would have been a more circuitous route without this paper. And what's very striking when you read it, and Uta's just alluded to this issue, is that this is a really, really specific system. The knowledge to be able to manipulate pneumococcus was very restricted. There weren't many labs that could do this work. So it wasn't like everybody was trying to, to discover the nature of the transforming principle. This was very niche. And I was really struck in, in rereading it that, you know, every time you reread a paper, you get a different impression of it. This time, what struck me was the real precision with which they explain quite how hard it is and all the variability that you find and the different strains and the different kind of broths you get. And you've basically, they're saying this is going to be, if you want to replicate this, it's going to be really, really hard. So we've got a system which Avery was highly expert in. He'd been nominated for the Nobel Prize already in the 1930s for his work on pneumococcus and the causes of, of pneumonia and identifying different strains. So he really knew what he was doing. And there was basically nobody who could have stepped in to fill his shoes. So we'd have had to find a different route. And I outlined various fantasies for how that, that might have taken place. So this, this paper, as Uta has said, is really the, the point at which the speculations that have existed before about the potential role of DNA are really given some solid experimental weight. And we can talk a bit later on about how this was seen with great enthusiasm by some and with huge doubts and irritation by others, as many kind of breakthrough discoveries are often seen. Yeah, just to follow up on a couple points that Matthew made uh, about how difficult it would have been for any other lab to take up this problem, let's just imagine Caltech. No one in Caltech was handling pathogenic bacteria. 
And the second thing, the wealth of information and tools that had been developed in Avery's lab from the time he got to Rockefeller in 1913, the antibodies, the enzymes against polysaccharide. And the remarkable thing is that an experimental system that was developed over three decades in Avery's lab, primarily for the purpose of medical research and the development of medical therapies, antibody therapy, rational vaccine design, became the platform for what Peter Medawar would call the most interesting and portentous biological experiment of the 20th century. So that's a point that fascinates me. And I wonder if we want to situate this paper in the history of biology and history of science, if it's not useful to step out of the history a little bit and follow up on the insight that the great immunologist and genius insightful biologist McFarlane Burnett had when he went to see Avery at the end of 1943 and wrote to his wife that Avery has made this most remarkable discovery. He's isolated. He's essentially isolated a pure gene in the form of deoxyribonucleic acid. And in fact, he was correct. And that's why the system was so powerful and enabled the group to isolate the gene as DNA or the or the transfer of genetic information within the system as DNA, because this is the first case of gene transfer ever studied. And it wasn't clear to the investigators for a long time, but what pneumococcus have is a system for passing free DNA from one cell to the other. So they had a system where they could study well-characterized and predictable phenotypes, this capsule phenotype that gives the pneumococcus, the ability to evade the immune system and makes them virulent. And at the same time, because this gene transfer system works with free DNA, it gave them a system in which they could chemically purify the gene that was being transferred. So I think that's useful. And so they could study a genetic change involving a well-defined phenotypic change and at the same time do these chemical experiments. And as Uda said before this, there was no way to connect genetics and chemistry. But because of its complexity, it was also open to doubt. I mean, this is the really fascinating thing because this is such a an unusual, and as you said, it was you know something that was refined, found in medical labs, not in kind of pure science labs. When Avery found the discovery, although there were lots of excitement around the place, and Boivin, for example, generalized it to E. coli, although people then started to say, well, we're not sure the data are right and so on. This didn't lead to a sudden rush to everybody using pneumococcus, right? I mean, apart from Ephrusi's lab in Paris, I mean, there was no major take up of this didn't become the model system for the work on DNA. It was known, but it, it wasn't something that anybody could immediately start to, to replicate and to pursue that study. So it had a, a massive, it was absolutely foundational, but because of the complexity of the system, which is what allowed Avery with his incredible attention to detail and that of his co-workers, of course, to be able to do the experiments, in a way, that was also a, a kind of break on its immediate ability to transform, sorry for the joke, to transform the, the whole field in terms of active research programs. Ute, you had your hand raised. Just a short comment to what Jeff said. Already in 1914, the great organic chemist Emil Fischer anticipated genetic manipulation with DNA. 
with synthetic DNA. He, he was, was building the purines, and it was believed at the time that DNA or nuclein was the genetic material. And so he suggested to do that, but shortly after he died and nobody else continued this. I'm just telling you that the, the idea was already there, but then it got, got completely forgotten, and now it, it, it came up in the 1930s, 40s. But again, what came together for the first time here is you could synthesize DNA and try to make a genetic change, but you have to be able to monitor what sort of phenotypic change is going to result from that. And and again, this is kind of getting back to what we were talking about, Matthew talking about in the medical background. This capsule phenotype was at the very center of Avery's studies from the time he got to Rockefeller, because this is the antigenic component of pneumococcus. This is what protective antibodies target. So he was very fortunate in the sense that, you know, this transformation phenomena was discovered and it so happened to converge with this phenotype and this cell structure that he had been studying by that time for, what, 15 years and, and in fact had made his name chemically characterizing, you know, the polysaccharide nature of this structure, which a kind of precursor to the, the whole what Uda was talking about, protein versus DNA gene, at that time, people were very skeptical that an antigen could be formed by something that wasn't a protein. And Avery went to great pains to prove that. So he was heroic in the efforts that he put into this, but he was also fortunate in, in terms of, of the system that he had and the system converging with the system that he developed for medical purposes, I think. Thank you. So my next question is sort of leading directly from everything you had to say. We've mentioned Avery quite a bit and the other two authors just very slightly. So could we back up a little bit and give some idea of who the authors were? Who was Avery? What had he done already? Obviously quite a lot from what you've already said, but also shed a little light into the two other authors of this paper and where they fit in in the work. Jeff? Would you care to go first? Well, in terms of the writing of the paper, Avery drafted the introduction, which is about a page and a half, and the discussion, which probably is the most read part of the paper, and about four pages. And McCarty drafted the 13-page experimental section, which included all these experiments that McLeod had done between 1934 and, and 1941 when he was in the lab. McLeod was the person who really revived the, the study of transformation in the lab. There had been the, the, the original Griffith discovery was replicated in Avery's lab, and then it was made into an in vitro process, first by Martin and uh, by Dawson and Sia, and then by Lionel Alloway, and that really set the stage for the, for the possibility to chemically purify it. And, and McLeod is really the one who took it to the point between 1934 and 1941, in the later years, in close collaboration, experimental collaboration with Avery, to the recognition that DNA was in these transforming extracts, and it didn't seem, protein didn't seem to be necessary, RNA didn't seem to be necessary. Polysaccharide was not thought to be necessary, but it actually was thought to be a component of the transformation process until McCarty got there in the fall of 1941, and he really nailed down the fact that it was DNA, that polysaccharide was not involved, 
that the stringing precipitate that in the famous passage of DNA winding it around a glass stirring rod, like thread around a spool, when they initially saw that McLeod and Avery, they actually thought that was the type three polysaccharide because that's what type, that's how actually how Michael Heidelberger had purified type three polysaccharide in the 1920s. You can, you can read it. It caused a stringy precipitate. And they were surprised when McCarty used an enzyme that takes away this polysaccharide, that there was still this stringy precipitate and this fibrous substance. They quickly realized it was DNA. And I think from then on, that was the beginning of 1942. I think they were very, very focused on the fact that this was DNA and how do we prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Thank you. Matthew, could you talk a little bit about Avery's path to this? Because it's pretty obvious that from what you've all mentioned, he was already involved in working on pneumococcus and that McLeod and McCarty joined his lab and subsequently started working on it. So a little bit of background into who Avery was and where he came from would be, I think, nice to set this paper in context for all our readers. I can only give you some very general uh, accounts of, of Avery. I mean, he was interested in, in pneumonia, right? And you've got to remember that was one of the biggest killers that there was, especially uh, in the period of the First World War, which is when he initially got interested in this. And there are no antibiotics. So being able to identify exactly what strain of pneumonia you've been infected with was one of the routes to trying to restrict its spread and so on. So this was incredibly applied work. It wasn't anything about fundamental about genes or whatever. And he carried on that work for another 10, 15 years. But as, as Jeff has said, with the Griffith's discovery of transformation, then clearly Avery started to wonder would it be possible to actually identify the physical basis of this? But this is still in a, in, a, in a medical context. It's not in a what's the nature of the gene context, which is how sometimes it can be reread and re-examined. And as I said earlier on, for all his work on pneumonia, I mean, I, I've forgotten, I did look in the Nobel archives descriptions of how often people were nominated for the Nobel Prize. But before this paper is published. He was nominated dozens of times by people uh, around the world for his work on pneumonia because it was so fundamental. But it was not about trying to discover the nature of the gene. So this is a happy chance of something which is fundamentally applied, his work on pneumonia, turning into an even more significant discovery about the nature of genes, at least in this one species. <laughs> and I think really got to emphasize that's partly, I mean, it's not only true, this is the only point at which there's evidence at this point, but also in the way that Avery wrote the article and perhaps had a bit of an argument with the editors of Journal of Experimental Biology about, about quite how bold he could be. He was much more bold in his letter to his brother, as Jeff said. There he says it, you know, this looks, it looks like a gene. But he doesn't say that in the article, which is one of those frustrating things because it's very conservative. But that is also part of Avery's character. He was a very reserved, rigorous man. You can see that in the experiments. I mean, yeah, McCarthy did involved in really nailing it. But that is exactly Avery's very, very systematic, logical, slow, but ultimately successful approach to science. I would like... You know, Matthew brought this up already, but I wanted to quote a student of mine 
who said when he was reading this paper for a class in history of science, the biology graduate student, he commented that it was simultaneously the most exciting and frustrating reading experience of all the papers we read for this class, which are more or less the papers that have been discussed so far in this series. The data is all there, but the authors just refuse to commit themselves, is what the students said. Is this reaction justified? And why? And while you're answering this question, if you feel the same way, especially, could you point to one of these frustrating passages? Uta? I completely don't agree. And <laughs> Matthew is laughing because the student makes the mistake that many people make of judging historical events from what we consider important right now. And that is, of course, genetics. That is one thing. And two points here. At the time, it was completely not clear whether there were bacterial genes. And I think this is very important to remember. And when mutations were found in bacteria, and Delbruck uh, analyzed them in 43, geneticists at first doubted that these genes could be homologized with the Mendelian genes of higher organisms. So it was completely not clear. And these doubts were dispelled only after uh, Joshua Lederberg and Tatum showed two years later, or one year later, no, two years later, that there was genetic recombination in E. coli in, yeah, in 1946. And the second thing one needs to know as a historian, I mean, this is what Matthew also said before, that Avery's personality, he was conservative. He disliked speculations very much. And so it was no wonder that he formulated the results very, very cautiously. In addition, he was, I think, also really prevented from being more bold by the editor. And I just quote from René Dubot, who reminded us of Avery's admonitions to students, be fearless when it comes to hypothesis, but humble in the presence of facts. Or it is great fun to blow bubbles, but you must be the first to prick them. And when we take into consideration this personality, I think it is very understandable that he formulated the results very cautiously. And I would not say he was not committed. He was extremely committed to showing the chemical nature of the factor and of the active principle, as he called it. Matthew. Yeah, I mean, I I think when we were having our, our pre-meeting discussion, I said, yes, I agree with the student. Uh, but I, having reread it again and again, I've got something else out of it uh, this time. And actually... I think it's quite remarkably bold, in particular, given his reticence and conservative nature and the problems with the, with the editor, perhaps. I mean, he does say very clearly that the inducing substance, the transforming principle, has been likened to a gene. And then he goes on to say that it is, you know, he does say, yes, perhaps there are some other minute quantities of protein that may be involved in it. But nucleic acids of this type must be regarded not merely as structurally important, but as functionally active in determining the biochemical activities and specific characteristics of pneumococcal cells. And he couldn't say anything about genes in any other organism because he didn't have any evidence. But it's very clear that despite all the twisting and turning that, the, you know, this has been likened to a gene if bacteria have genes, which was a moot point, then this looks remarkably like it's made of DNA. And I think, I mean, I'm not sure what more you could say. You could have you know, a very speculative end paragraph or something, but 
I mean, that wasn't the way that science was written at the time. And if you did that today, you'd probably get a bit of a kicking from the referees who wouldn't like it because, well, where's your evidence here? What's the mechanism and all the rest of it? So, I mean, the problems with the paper come from the density of it and the particular system which most of us, most readers today are completely unfamiliar with. And that's the difficulty of really getting at what's what each stage of the argument is trying to demonstrate. But the conclusion, I think, is really very, very clear that although it hasn't been 100% proved, it's virtually certain that the transforming principle is made of DNA and the transforming principle has been likened to a gene. I think that's pretty good. Jeff? Well, I agree with everything Uta said and everything Matthew said and a parallel experience to Matthew rereading this though and comparing it again once again to the letter that Avery wrote to his brother I think it would have been nice and not too speculative simply to mention oh by the way we know that DNA is a major component of chromosomes of higher organisms which to my knowledge he does not say in that paper He does say it to his brother that it touches the biochemistry of the thymus type of nucleic acids, which are known to constitute the major part of the chromosomes. And here's the second point, but have been thought to be alike regardless of origin and species. So a little before Nirja came to Rockefeller, we did a 50th anniversary big celebration at Rockefeller uh, of this paper. And most of the people involved in the DNA story were still alive, including Al Hershey. And this was a point that he made to much applause in the auditorium that they could have said, well, this really cast doubt on the tetranucleotide hypothesis of Levine that all nucleic acids are alike, which was well known to be based on pretty slender evidence. So I think that would have been within the realm of, first of all, generalizing it a little bit that this is not, DNA is not some substance that, you know, we just came down from the moon. We've known about this substance. It's It's a major component of chromosomes, and that this challenges this tetranucleotide hypothesis, which itself rests on pretty slender evidence. So I think that would have been possible to do. Uta? It might have been possible, but I wonder whether it would have been necessary. Everybody knew, everybody in the field knew what chromosomes were made of. And I don't think it would have been wise to include this. I, I have the feeling it would be not. Something. And the other question I have in that context, so gene, yes, bacterial gene, but what if it was a case of directed mutations? I mean, you cannot exclude that either. And I think it appears somewhere. And I think Dobzhansky came up with an idea like that. And so that was the categories the geneticist had at the time, mutations by x-rays, mutations by chemicals. And so maybe it's just another case of mutations. So it is not so easy to, to generalize to genes. Yeah, I mean that on my on my copy of it, the opening two sentences of the of the paper. Biologists have long attempted by chemical means to induce in higher organisms predictable and specific changes which thereafter could be transmitted in series as hereditary characters. And I've written to next to this controlled mutation. I mean that's that's one interpretation. 
the main interpretation, because that's what people were trying to do, to create mutations so they could understand the physical nature of the gene. And as Uta said, this is exactly how Dobzhansky interprets it when he, uh, he refers to the unpublished data in 1941, because this has been published in reports for the Rockefeller Institute, but had yet to appear in an article. And Dobzhansky is kind of scooping, <laughs> scooping Avery in a way by referring to it. But, you know, they're not they're not sure, as Uta says, you know, it's not clear that this is analogous to genes in multicellular organisms. What if it is simply to do with this very specific, weird transformation of type in pneumococcus? There was no evidence that there was anything more general here. And, you know, it, it would have been speculative and we might like speculation and wish that Avery had been bolder. But there's no reason to do that. There's no evidence for it in any other organism at the time. And I think that's that's the thing you, you, you've got to remember, why it both is transformational and foundational, but also is limited. And the, the impact it has, which we're going to discuss shortly, is both enormous and limited. And that, that contradiction you can only understand in really grasping the system that he'd been studying. If he'd found this in Drosophila, say, I think the response would have been different, but that would have been really, really hard. Uh, and there's a reason why they didn't do that in Drosophila. Jeff. So, yeah, just briefly, I wasn't trying to say that, he, to generalize that this shows that DNA must be the stuff genes are made of in all organisms outside of pneumococcus. But the, it was thought that DNA just played some sort of structural role in chromosomes, that it was a midwife molecule, for instance, in the replication of, of protein genes. And if you find in this one system that DNA seems to have genetic specificity, it opens the door to asking, does DNA in higher chromosomes have genetic specificity? And, and it did, certainly to, to at least some people who read this paper. Not enough. But I agree with what Matthew just said and, and what Uda said about that, that it would have been way too far to talk about this as a revealing that, that genes in general are made of DNA just from this perhaps pneumococcal curiosity of pneumococcal type transformation. Thank you. I just wanted to add one more thing in defense of my students, so to speak, because, and Jeff will remember this, when we spoke with, or rather, when you interviewed McCarty, one of the things he did say was, if we'd had our druthers, we would have put in something to the effect of the gene is, you know, the bacterial gene is made of DNA, or I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, I just wanted to bring that up and ask Jeff to elaborate on that. Yes, well, we were talking about the relative contributions of McLeod, McCarty, and Avery. I should say that I know for a fact that McCarty thought Avery was far too cautious in the discussion, and, and McLeod apparently agreed. So I think it would have been written in a different way, perhaps, if, if they had been in, involved in drafting the dis discussion. And this is related to what McCarty told Nirja and us when we were, we were interviewing him. If that's all people have to say on this topic, I'd like to move on. Uta, I think this question is first directed at you because of your very fine papers on the topic, but then I'd like for Matthew and Jeff to also put in their perspectives on the reception of this paper. 
so first of all, Avery's paper was immediately widely discussed from various points of views. And uh, I have conducted a citation analysis over the first 10 years and also read the papers that cited Avery. And he was uh, cited over this period of time for 239 times, which is quite, quite good. And it, the citation did not subside. I mean, it was the same height all over the years. So the interest remained also after 10 years. And this included scientists who perceived his genetic implications. And I just mentioned two of them, two of the authors, who were very appreciative and thought we have to think about also higher organisms and the possibility that the genes are made of, of DNA. And one of them was Hermann Muller, a student of, of Morgan and a very prominent uh, geneticist. And the other one was pharmacologist, Sir Henry Dale, but he also mentioned the possible importance for genetics, which had to be, of course, examined. And so the paper motivated Chagav, as we know, to examine the species specificity of DNA. I mean, everybody knows the Chagav rules. They were a byproduct of this uh, research, but he really demonstrated the species specificity, which was a logical result of uh, reading Avery, because he trusted Avery. And it was also uh, that Randall and Wilkins in London started to do X-ray studies on DNA because they also knew that Avery was a fine researcher and could be trusted. And the third example is Lederberg, Joshua Lederberg, who explored bacterial genetics that I mentioned before. So there was a tremendous impact. But there was also skepticism and neglect. And that was especially when the results were not reproducible. They were not reproducible in E. coli. At first, Boivin said it is reproducible, but then it was shown it was not, and that was a tremendous setback. Then it was not reproducible in Neurospora by Lederberg, and also not in Phage by, by Seymour Cohen in '47. It was all very, very short, and people tried to reproduce it. And so that reduced the enthusiasm of the importance of the, the paper. But of course, Avery reproduced it, and he also purified the DNAs to show very, very clearly that it must have been DNA, the transforming substance. So that is one thing. And then there was neglect from the very beginning from the phage group, the phage group around Max Delbrück, and they were the new molecular geneticists, a very the avant-garde of, of the new genetics. And they were simply not interested. I mean, Avery was never interested in chemistry in the first place, but also there was a disciplinary gap between Avery's methods and Delbrück's phage group's methods, which was the phage research and X-ray studies. And moreover, there were, especially Delbrück, he was so in love with proteins that he really could not give up the protein dogma of the gene. It was really amazing. It took very, very long, very long, yes, I mean, until Hershey and Chase showed it in his own lab. So that is one thing. And the other one was Alfred Mursky at the Rockefeller Institute. And this was very interesting because Mursky himself had pointed to the importance of DNA. It's probably known. And he showed the, the crucial role of DNA in heredity in, by comparing the DNA content in haploid and diploid cells in animals. And so there was a lot of resistance on the part of Mursky. And Eric Davidson, who was a student of Mursky's, he told me that one of the reasons, I mean, there were other reasons as well, but he told me that Mursky was hurt by the fact that the world, as it seemed to him, 
paid more attention to the dirty Avery experiments on bacteria than to his and Vendrelli's uh, clean measurements of haploid and diploid DNA content in animal cells. So that was here the arrogance of the eukaryotic uh, researchers. And uh, so when we summarize the, uh, the main reasons for skepticism and neglect, it was the irreproducibility in various organisms, then that the work was not considered revolutionary enough for the new avant-garde of genetics, and there were disciplinary boundaries. But I want to mention one thing. I could not find in the papers of any of the people who were skeptical of Avery's genetic results, I couldn't find that they used the argument of the monotony of DNA. They did simply not use it. And I, I looked around and I read papers and they said it was really, first of all, DNA was now known to be a polymer. And they said we don't really know how, how it is constructed. And, and in any case, the biological specificity until the 1950s was believed to reside in three-dimensional structures and not in, in, in sequences. So the monotony of the, the sequences was not used as an argument against the validity of Avery's paper. Yeah, in, indeed. In 1947, Masson Gulland had suggested that maybe the bases were in varied sequences, and that could be one way that specificity could be expressed through a nucleic acid. But I, I think there's a there's a really interesting bit of kind of historiography here about how the views of this paper and its reception have changed over time, because very much in the 1960s, we were given the view by uh, Gunter Stent, who was one of the phage group who wrote some of the early kind of historical accounts, but also from Vivian Wyatt writing in Nature that this was a what they called a premature discovery. Now, I don't know what a premature discovery is. <laughs> I mean, discovery is when it comes along, you know, and there are reasons, not some prematurity. There are reasons if that discovery does not immediately have the kind of impact that you might retrospectively expect. And I think Uta's absolutely right. One of the problems for the phage group, so for Delbrook in particular, but all of them, is that, as Delbrook put it, well, if it's not proteins, it's just some other damn macromolecule. And, you know, they really didn't think, and, and this is so important, they didn't think that the molecular structure of the gene would tell them anything particularly interesting about the function. That's why they weren't interested. It wasn't just a, a disciplinary thing. It was a, almost a conceptual one. And we are equally trapped because we are trapped by the double helix, right? Which is so obvious and actually is probably an exception. If you think most molecular structures, when you look at them, you have no idea what they do. Unless you're a real expert and you understand the chemistry and the biochemistry and you can figure it out, you have no idea what's going on. And indeed, the early models of DNA don't tell you anything about how it might replicate or anything. if you think of those studies that were done the models that were made by Asprey, for example, Asprey and Bell in 1938, they're kind of like a pile of pennies. And the double helix, of course, immediately tells you two things. I'm sorry, this is a spoiler, Neosha, and for any <laughs> listeners, it tells you two things. Firstly, how the molecule can copy itself, but also that the order of the bases uh, carries specificity and could be infinitely variable. And for us, we think, well, of course, you must be interested in the molecular structure of the gene. It's obvious that, you, you know, it's going to tell you something really important. And Delbrook, you're a fool. Or maybe that's just me <laughs> thinking that. But I, that is absolutely wrong, I think. And you need to put yourself 
into his shoes where he's primarily interested in genetic phenomena and you know i think it would have been a work of unbelievable genius and inspiration to suggest that the structure was going to have the kind of implications that we it eventually turned out to be so i think one can one raise an eyebrow about the phage group their lack of interest and then their slight rewriting of history which meant everybody talks about hershey and chase's experiment rather than avery's uh, certainly textbooks i mean if you read a textbook it's all about Hershey and Chase, and everybody thinks it was a brilliant experiment. We will talk about this later, I know, in a subsequent talk. But, you know, they, the Phage group kind of contributed to that as they wrote their version of history and not the one I think that we're exploring in this podcast series. Uta, you had something to say, and then Jeff? Directly to Matthew, two things. First, the idea of prematurity which was suggested for Avery, also for Mendel, in, in many publications or several publications. And I checked that and I went through it, but I completely don't agree. But I follow Lederberg, who said that there is no prematurity because every new paper or every new finding, new discovery has to meet with skepticism. This is science. And if it did not, it is not good science. It is a trivial or it is uh, whatever can be forgotten very, very sh uh, shortly. So I agree with, with your interpretation over there. And the other thing is concerning the, the phage group. There was, of course, also Luria. And Luria was, uh, he was not a romantic like Delbrück was. I mean, who followed Bohr and, and he wanted to solve the thing with the help of a new physics or something. No, Luria was, uh, was really on the ground and he uh, studied biochemistry and he sent Watson to Europe to study biochemistry. I mean, we have just to say that too. So they, they stopped it. And the third thing about Hershey and Chase, I always found it uh, really outrageous because one of the arguments against Avery from Mursky was there is a tiny percentage of DNA in his samples, and he cannot get rid of that. And in Hershey and Chase, I think they had 20% of proteins in their samples. So it, it is absolutely ridiculous that they did not, I mean, mention Avery. Okay, I just wanted to follow up really quickly on the phage group's reaction to, to Avery and, and interest in DNA, that at this event at Rockefeller, Hershey came, and I did a little interview with him, before the round table in the auditorium. And he said, and of course he was in correspondence with Jim Watson at this time before the double helix, he would not have given a dime for the structure of DNA. So that just amplifies Matthew's point that nobody expected a molecular structure to be bio biologically revealing. And in fact, what was the next molecular structure that was biologically revealing after the double helix? How long did it have to did we have to go? So the second is Seymour Cohen, who, who Uda mentioned, was really an outlier within the phage group. He was a trained biochemist. He had, I believe, gotten his PhD with Stanley working on TMV and then did a postdoc with none other than Erwin Shargaff at Columbia. And he's the one who really pioneered the study of DNA synthesis in the context of phage reproduction and was immediately inspired by the Avery experiment. And in fact, Uda alluded to this. He has a report in the 1947 Cold Spring Harbor where he attempts to use this new system of mixed infection, genetic recombination between different phage strains to get DNA from one of these phage strains and get transformation within phage. It fails, but it shows what becomes imaginable and conceivable in the wake of Avery that was not 
imaginable and conceivable before. Yeah, I think just want to come back briefly on Uta's point about Avery's reputation, because you know, we talked earlier on about you know, he's been nom- nominated for the Nobel Prize. I think that reputation is so important in the acceptance, not only in the acceptance by the scientific community, by his peers who then see, well, we should take this seriously and try and think about it. And the not single handedly, but doing a big job in boosting the whole study of nucleic acids, which became the second most significant area of biological research in the post-war world uh, after antibiotics. I mean, it was, you know, everybody recognized that these were important molecules, whatever they were doing. But it's also the prize-winning community and the, the kind of journalistic community. When Avery gets the gold medal of the New York Academy of Sciences, it's primarily for his work on pneumococcus, but it also says that the paper, which came out a few months earlier, had very far-reaching implications. Nature says that this is really, really important. The Royal Society in 45 gives Avery the Copley Award, again, for this deep work on pneumococcus from a, a medical point of view. But it also says that the gene appears to be nucleic acid of the desoxyribose type. So, you know, the this is being taken very, very seriously by the scientific establishment, if you wish. The fact that there are academics and scientists for various reasons, either because they don't get it, like the phage group, or because they've got some kind of bizarre spat, like Mirsky, the fact that some people don't get it, there is an overwhelming acceptance, I think, and excitement in the case of somebody like Lederberg, who you know throws up medicine, decides he's going to do bacteria. It's quite amazing, this transformation that he has from reading the paper, that at least in this species, and potentially in others, that genes, a gene, or a hereditary factor might be made of DNA. And that never mind about the structure, just as a fact, as something that you could then to understand basic cellular processes, this was really important. But it goes back to Avery being a man you could trust, one of those authors of a paper where you go, yeah, okay, I mean, I'll accept this. Whereas if it come from some strange lab that nobody had ever heard of, then different kind of reactions might have kicked in and it wouldn't have been perhaps taken so seriously. Yeah, just to follow up, I think Avery was arguably considered the greatest medical bacteriologist of the first half of the 20th century. But he was also, along with Carl Landsteiner and Michael Heidelberger, who got his start in Avery's lab, one of the founders of immunochemistry as it existed until the 1950s, when people like Rodney Porter and Gerald Edelman started to get a handle on the chemical organization of antibodies. So that field, which of course had started in Germany in the 1890s with von Behring and Kitasato and Paul Ehrlich, was the new paradigm for it, was really created by those three people and a, and a few others. So his reputation was, that's this is why he was nominated for a Nobel Prize so many times before the transformation work. And he would have had a, an international reputation if he had never done the transformation work. The great immunology prize in Europe was called the uh, Landsteiner Avery Prize. So again, just just reinforcing the point about his reputation as a scientist. So given Avery's stellar worldwide reputation, isn't it somewhat ironic that his ideas about the transforming principle and its chemical identity were challenged by a colleague within his own institute? 
Isn't it true that some of the most vehement opposition to Avery's idea came from Alfred Mirsky? Or am I overstating the case here? Would any of you care to comment? I'm not sure about the entirety of Mirsky's motivations for opposing Avery. So I will use the word vehemently. And what and I think it was very damaging to Avery. I mean, because it was Mirsky who was the nucleic acid chemist within Rockefeller, and he was a trained biochemist. And here he is pouring cold water on the Avery results. No, there's there's a protein contaminant that is probably carrying the genetic specificity. I know Bob Olby told me, who interviewed Mirsky, that there was also a, a degree of snobbery involved. First of all, Mirsky came from a fairly wealthy background, but he would refer to McCarty, McLeod, and Avery as the medical doctors. They weren't trained biochemists, and here they are trespassing on his grounds. And just to give one example of how damaging it was, when we did our 50th anniversary of the paper at Rockefeller in 1994, Linus Pauling was still alive, but he was quite ill and couldn't come. And he sent Norton Zinder, a very short note, almost a telegram, saying that he was friends with Mirsky because they had done a famous 1937 paper on the role of hydrogen bonds and tertiary structure. And he believed Mirsky, so he didn't believe Avery. So you can say that one of the reasons Linus Pauling was so late to the game to become interested in DNA was because of Mirsky's opposition to the Avery finding. Yes, yes, that is true. But that doesn't, I mean, this, this, this happens. I mean, he was really opposed to it. And he was not opposed because he, he thought DNA was not important. No, on the contrary. But he was opposed because Avery worked in, in bacteria. It was a little bit also that his own experiments, he felt, were not taken seriously enough. And in addition, he, he also then, I think, in this paper you mentioned, he did not say it is only DNA. I think he always left open that there is a certain protein fraction. So he would not be so radical as Avery was to say it is DNA and only DNA. And this was the real radical aspect of, of, of Avery's work. So uh, in that respect, he did, Mirsky did not change. Thank you all for your insights. I'd like to now turn to another matter that I think is worth commenting on in the context of this podcast on the DNA papers. And that is, whereas all the papers discussed in the past six episodes are central in some way or another to the history of DNA, they have not necessarily been connected to one another. We've seen work from three or four distinct disciplines, including physiological and organic chemistry, cellular biology and genetics, microbiology, and physics via X-ray crystallography. Now, today's paper was a direct extension of the work reported by Griffith in 1928, which we discussed in episode 4. But I would venture to claim that all the past papers that we've discussed, with the exception of the Asbury and Bell paper on X-ray crystallography, has some direct bearing on this 1944 paper, even if it was not explicitly cited. Indeed, except for Griffith, none of the others were explicitly cited, but very well could have been. And I was hoping 
that some of you could connect these dots for our listeners. Well, I think you're right. It's this fusion of the, I mean, it's partly by chance, right? So, but it's also Avery's systematic experimental genius, I think, that leads to this convergence. So we've got the microbiology, the basic phenomenon, but then he is one trying to, with the help of his colleagues, one trying to find the material basis of that. So that's the chemistry and the biochemistry, but also recognizing partly through the, the, the suggestion of Dobzhansky and others, that this might have a genetic component. Although, as Uta said, we've got to remember it was unclear or almost certainly not thought that bacteria had genes like other organisms, uh, you, you know, multicellular or eukaryotic organisms do. But I, I think it's very interesting that you've, you've pointed out that Asprey and the structural stuff, which is what most people would think of today. If you talk about you know, DNA, why is it significant? Then they're all going to focus in on 1953 because that's what not only the general public, but you know, students learn about. And this, this backstory, well, why were they interested in DNA anyway, uh, tends to get kind of blurred out or, or, or forgotten. And so there is still a kind of disciplinary silo here in that the structural stuff, which remember was very weird, right? So although X-ray crystallography was astonishing technique, it primarily been used on uh, inorganic molecules. That's really what it was developed for, for understanding. And uh, Asprey was one of the first people to try and look at a, an organic molecule that he'd been able to crystallize uh, using X-ray crystallography. And one of the reasons he was interested in it was precisely because they thought it was not only maybe biologically significant, but that it was simple because of the well, the basic chemical composition looked like it was fairly simple. So if you're going to try and understand the role of something in a chromosome, better to look at DNA than at the proteins, which are going to be incomprehensible. So, but that is not, I mean, my guess, I don't know, maybe Uta knows, my guess is that Avery had no idea about Asprey's work and hadn't kind of noticed it. I could be wrong on that. If I may interrupt, Matthew, I don't think that's correct. Aren't there records of Asbury corresponding with Avery in 1945, requesting for some of the DNA material to be sent to Leeds for X-ray analysis because he was so excited by the implications of Avery's discovery? You're absolutely right. In fact, I recall now that they were in they were in contact. But then it's interesting that I mean, citations aren't were different back then. But even so, it's interesting that he, he, he doesn't cite it or refer to it, that this might be another approach to trying to understand or confirm the, the nature of the transforming principle. Yeah, very briefly, concerning uh, Asbury, I think he never cited the Avery paper, at least not in the first 10 years. So that is the only thing I can, can say to that. No, I think concerning disciplinary threats, Averis and Al's paper brings together genetics and microbiology in a, in a very concrete way. And this is maybe the most important part of this synthetics of disciplines. But its reception also shows the deep gaps between the disciplines. They are not by any means bridged immediately. It, it took very, very long for them to be bridged. I mean, there is classical genetics who didn't care either about bacteria or about Delbruck's work or whatever the new molecular genetics. There is animal biochemical genetics, the one gene, one enzyme hypothesis, which also I don't think are not related at all to, to this discussion of the new molecular biology. And there is phage genetics. So it shows very clearly these disciplinary gaps. 
and it is fascinating to see the way later on they were, let's say, the disciplines opened up and included aspects of, of the others. When I was reading over the experimental part, it occurred to me that, that they were really, they were doing genetic experiments, even if they couldn't describe it as genetic experiments. And even if in the early stages, they didn't even interpret transformation genetically. And it's just the way that, first of all, how did they get, how did McLeod get this R strain that was used for all the experiments, R36? Okay, he gets type 2 pneumococcus with a capsule, and he grows it in the presence of anti-type 2 capsule antibodies. So that he's selecting for loss of function mutants that lose this capsule. Because when you have antibodies that bind to the capsule, they agglutinate, they fall to the bottom of the flask, and he would, he would get rid of the agglutinated cells and grow the cells that which could continue to grow in the medium. And he went through 36 passages of that. That's why it's called R36. And then got this strain that never reverted back to a capsulated form. So you're selecting for a loss of function mutant. How did they get transformation? They got, well, the R cell may not have a capsule, but it still has a bacterial cell wall. It may not cause disease, but if you, if you inject billions of them into a mouse, a mouse will make antibodies against that, that R cell wall. So they grow this, these R cells, the, the type 2 derived R36 strain in the presence of anti-R antibody and then provide the extract that has transforming ability. And now you're selecting for the R cells that can get the DNA that will make them grow a capsule that will protect them from these anti-R antibodies. So this is, I mean, Matthew can speak to this. This is, I think a geneticist would call this a gen these, these genetic screens, but it's never described that way. And you sort of have to pick it out. Oh, by the way, we're growing these, you know, the R cells to become transformed and to, and to derive R cells from the so-called wild type encapsulated form. We're performing a genetic screen. And I found that a remarkable thing. And I think it's rarely emphasized in an account of this experiment. So anyway, that's just it's it's just in terms of the question that you had, the, the the framing question about these different fields that come together in this paper. So early in this episode, Jeff cited Avery's letter, the very eloquent letter to his brother Roy, written at the eve of the publication of this paper. But I was wondering if any of you had passages in the paper itself that you feel are worth repeating for our listeners to get a better idea of the full import of this paper at the time it was published and beyond. Yes, I think it is worth quoting the last sentence of the discussion of this paper, which Avery wrote, which is at the same time very cautious and very prophetic. And the sentence goes, if the results of the present study on the chemical nature of the transforming principle are confirmed, then nucleic acids must be regarded as possessing biological specificity, the chemical basis of which is as yet undetermined. And this really set the agenda that, of course, Shargath immediately pursued, and in fact, Hot Roland Hotchkiss within Rockefeller also pursued. The tetranucleotide 
that that DNA is all the same cannot be right. We have to look for the variability uh, between DNA, but it's also looking ahead to structural studies of DNA. My final question today is one that is something of a recurring guest in this series, which is to say I don't ask it every time, but I would very much like to revive it today because Avery's paper, like Sutton's paper on chromosomes, and unlike virtually every other paper we've discussed so far in the series, is not an unknown entity in the history of biology. Virtually anybody who has studied biology in their undergrad has encountered it in some form. I, for example, can clearly remember it being mentioned in my undergrad microbiology textbook, a massive hardbound tome, blue in color, by somebody called Davis, sometime in the early 1980s. But I didn't actually read the paper until a decade and a half later, in 1996, when Jeff set me to the task of finding the paper trails to and from the discovery that transforming principle was made of DNA. So I'd like to hear from each one of you, in any order you please, about your first encounter. When did you first learn about the paper? And when did you actually first read it? Well, I'll go with my, my usual confession uh, in that, uh, you know, my, my undergraduate training and my, my academic career was not at all based on molecular genetics. And I didn't use such tools for quite a long time. So, and I have no micro, microbiology background at all. So I first encountered Avery's work when I was translating Michel Morange's book on the, uh, the history of molecular biology in the mid-1990s. And then I didn't read a paper, but that's when I first learned about it. And then only read it when I was working on my book, Life's Greatest Secrets, which is about the, the race to crack the genetic code. And I had to write a bit about why they were all interested in DNA in the first place. And that meant I had to encounter Avery. And I was absolutely, well, ashamed as you always are when you encounter great historical figures who you've kind of have completely passed you by, but also, you know, quite delighted by him, by his his reserve and his precision. And I I kind of got a a desire to evangelize a bit. So that's one reason why I wrote the article for for current biology, because uh, I mean I I talked to without give, naming any names, talked to you know colleagues at, at work in Manchester, and many of them looked kind of blank. And I I thought, well, we need to do something to alter this. And then so that. It was primarily through that. And then I was reading the article when I was writing my book because I really need to understand exactly what had gone on and try and then distill it for the general reader. So this is probably about the third or fourth time that I've read it, something like that. And uh, as I said uh, at the beginning, each time you, you read it, you encounter something else. And most recently, I encountered it again, or rather I encountered the transforming principle again. And I'm not, I, I know this is a spoiler, Anisha, but in, in the time we're recording this, we've just passed the 70th anniversary of the, the papers on the structure of DNA in nature. And in the Wilkins paper, right at the very end, he describes, he, he's describing all the, the DNA he's been looking at from various samples. And there at the end, he says, we also looked at the transforming principle. And this gave exactly the same images as the sample of uh, DNA from squid and all the rest. So although it wasn't Avery wasn't cited, he's there 
his results are there in the seminal papers of 1953. I knew about the paper in high school when I was preparing a, a lecture on DNA because it was not taught and I thought it needs to be taught. And so I, I came across, but I never read it, of course. And I, I started to read it when I was teaching about history of genetics and, and in particular about the reasons for the long period of time that passed between Misha's discovery and Watson and Crick's discovery. And there I came, of course, again across Avery and I read it the first time. But I read it the second time when I heard a lecture on Avery, on the personality of Avery and on his work by Raphael Falk. And that inspired me to do my research on the early reception. And then, of course, I had to, had to read it. I've been teaching that class for a long period of time. I mean, it was in the end 1990s, 2000. And the lecture of, of Falk was before I wrote the paper. The paper was written in published in 2004, so around 2002 or 2001, I, I don't remember. And it was, it was also, what intrigued me also was this the discussion about prematurity, because I never liked this idea, because I always think it's an excuse not to investigate more closely what really happened. And so I thought, oh, I will do it myself. And I, that's, that's what I did. Well, I hope you don't mind if I get a little fanciful, but I certainly first read it in 1992 when I first got to Rockefeller and started working for Torsten Wiesel in the president's office because I sort of started to initiate the idea that we should do something big to celebrate the 50th anniversary in 1994. But I'm embarrassed to say I have no good memory of what my reactions were to reading the paper, which is kind of can be kind of a tough slog to get through. But what I do have a very vivid memory is taking the paper with me on vacation in the summer of 1993, 30 years ago, along with this wonderful book on Homer by a classics pr professor, Andrew Ford, called Homer, the Poetry of the Past. And, and I remember reading the Avery paper in light of, of some of the things that Ford had written about Homer. And if you'll indulge me, because I went through the book last night and found some passages that I had marked and was struck by 30 years ago. Ford says that Homeric epic, and this is a quote, is poetry of the past in that it defines itself by heroic subject matter. And that while grounded in particulars, Homeric epic has the quality of the universal. And certainly this paper had those qualities for me because a heroic effort that lasted over a decade to, to arrive at the transforming substance as DNA. And this, of course, involved many, many, many detailed particulars of pneumococcus and the enzymes they use, but it arrived at this universal genetic secret of life. And secondly, Ford writes, Homeric epic is poetry of the past in that it gives us unique access to these ancient heroic deeds, brings them especially close to us, bring these heroic events before our eyes and make, makes them vivid. And that Homer sees vividness as a matter of being early, of singing as the first poet on the scene would sing. And I have to say, this is how I feel about this paper and its essential compliment, which is the Avery letter to his brother Roy, that I like to think of experimental science as a special form of learning by experience. And experiment and experience have the same Latin root to try, learn by trying. 
And that's the experience that you get going through the experimental part of this paper. And to me, reading this paper transports, at least me, back to this very historical foundation of our deep genetic understanding of life. It refreshes poetically our sense of life and biology, makes it new. And when we hear Avery sing to his brother, for instance, that when you add drops of absolute ethyl alcohol to a nearly purified transforming extract, an interesting thing occurs. There separates out a fibrous substance, which on stirring the mixture wraps itself around the glass rod like thread on a spool. And we, the modern reader, know that this thread is DNA, the genetic thread of life itself, revealed as a stuff of genes to human eyes for the first time. So that I remember that experience of reading this paper through the eyes of heroic literature, epic literature, because I think it, it fits in there, in your series. Thank you, Jeff. It's really refreshing, in a way, to return to a few heroic and epic allusions in a time when such things are more or less unfashionable in the history of science. I will confess I'm really happy that our discipline still has room for such stories, especially when it's peopled with characters like Avery, McLeod, and McCarty, who truly were great people and really fine scientists and really nice men. I'd like to thank all our participants today for such a very informative and meaty session and hope the audience enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. This has been a podcast from the Consortium of the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine in Philadelphia. I am Nirja Sankaran, the moderator for this series, and invite you to tune back in next month for the sequel.